Hey everybody, welcome back to the Health Mastery Show and in today's episode we have on with us Dr. Greg Potter to talk all about fueling for the ultra endurance events. So that's events, anything longer than a marathon distance. So it's a really interesting conversation that I had with Greg and he's a super knowledgeable guy and we dive all the way in depth in everything that you need to know about fueling for these long distance events. If you're new to the podcast, Welcome, this is a podcast where we try and translate science of training and nutrition into practical application. Please do hit the subscribe button so you can get future notifications of more episodes and guests like this. But without further ado, let's get into this episode with Dr. Greg Potter. Hey Greg, good to have you on again, man. Hey Adam, how are you? I'm good, thanks a lot for jumping on. I know we did this episode maybe about two or three months ago and... Yeah, technical problems on my side. Um, so yeah, doing this again. So really appreciate you coming on. So we, you have been on the episode or on the podcast before, which was probably 2018 or 2019, I think, probably 2019. So I don't know if people have, have listened to that episode. We, we got into sleep and I think you have kind of not been pigeonholed, but you've kind of been this, this sleep expert on a lot of these podcasts i've seen you on many podcasts talking about sleep which obviously is very important and very interesting but for those who perhaps don't know who you are do you want to do a bit of an intro uh, to who you are what you're up to what your your background is etc sure i'll try and keep it brief background is been fascinated by how lifestyle affects health and performance since i was 12 i studied sport and exercise science at loughborough university and specialized in exercise physiology a year after that i did a master's in exercise physiology and throughout that time at loughborough i also coached athletes from various sports primarily strength and power athletes such as sprinters and i had a group of 100 200 meter sprinters that i was sole coach to at that time some national level athletes otherwise university level athletes and I then did a PhD at the University of Leeds, which focused on the relationships between how we sleep, how we eat, and our metabolic health. Since that time, I've worked as content director at a website named humanos.me, creating things like courses, blogs, podcasts. I've also worked for a year as the chief science officer at a digital health startup that was trying to create an app that gives people real-time personalized health guidance and more recently I co-founded a company named Resilient Nutrition and our goal is to make feeling and performing better easy and convenient and delicious and our first product is a nut butter based product that was first designed for ultra endurance athletes and in my role at Resilient Nutrition while I focus on formulating products, I do also work with athletes from certain sports. And for the last couple of years, most of the work that I've done with athletes has been with ultra endurance athletes, specifically including ultra runners, kayakers, ocean sailors, and ocean rowers. Mm, that, that's very interesting. Um, I, I think the first time I ever came across you was actually on humanos.com dot me or that's what it was yeah one article that really stuck out of my mind uh, i don't know if you wrote it but it was just on that website years ago was some research into i think it was somebody on the podcast research into into flies i think it was and 
why they, they sleep at certain points of the day after eating meals because they're people are kind of trying to figure out like why do you get sleepy after you eat is it because of the tryptophan or is it because you have an insulin increase and then you know hypo you know what's it called the rebound or postprandial into you know hypoglycemia or something like that and it's always interesting um, yeah the podcast was with a guy named keith murphy who i think is now a postdoc really nice guy and they've done quite a few podcasts on sleep and they're excellent podcasts i'm somewhat biased even though i'm not affiliated with the company anymore but the guy who's the ceo dan very bright guy did his own phd focusing on sleep and metabolism and he's got excellent taste and guests yeah yeah it's, it's it's an interesting interesting podcast for sure but but today we're, we're going to talk about something a little bit different than sleep and that's uh ultra endurance nutrition um it's not something i don't think i've ever really talk, talked about this on the podcast before um i think we may have touched a little bit about some of these topics with uh mike t nelson um around just some of the metabolic flexibility or vo2 max you know very foreign terms to people who want to build muscle um they don't really care too much about the vo2 max but i found over the last i think it was 2019 i started my master's degree um and i you know i can't remember the last time i ran more than three kilometers um you know willingly i played basketball for a bit but but never actually go out for a run and did anything endurance like um but but really understanding these systems and and how nutrition applies to endurance athletes can even cross over into into people who are endurance trained athletes and and the interesting is the interesting thing is for people especially who are you know want to learn the the kind of the the, the science or the background is that i don't know i'm going to throw around a number out there but like 90 percent of nutrition for exercise is based off of endurance athletes i think or at least mixed intensity you, you get very very little on resistance trained athletes and i guess there's probably many reasons one's because the money uh, is in there it's easier probably to to have an impact it probably has a greater impact in terms of you know specific strategies i'm not sure what your kind of thoughts are on that does nutrition have a stronger effect on endurance performance than on performance and strength of power athletes yeah i, I think you know once you get you know protein in and you're eating enough food i probably think it does in my opinion possibly I suppose one of the considerations for endurance athletes if it, is that if they mess up their nutrition, then it can quite easily take them out of the race entirely. And if you think about ultra running specifically, then many ultras take place over several days if they're multi-stage. And yeah. when that's the case, the likelihood of nutrition-related issues is very high. Whereas if you are a 100-meter sprinter, then it's rarely a problem. And yeah, to be yeah. honest, whether you have a meal before the event or not probably has very little bearing on your performance. Some people would even speculate that it might be good for performance in that your body mass will be slightly lower. And in that mm. type of event, relative power, so your power relative to your body weight is a strong determinant of performance. Yeah, I've even heard stuff like um, fasting or you know, fasting may help in, uh, release you know some catecholamines or norepinephrine epinephrine and then you give you that kind of more ex excited state or you know sympathetic state i, I don't know it's probably quite a, a discussion for another day but um 
Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that. I, I was watching, I, I subscribed to Discovery uh, to, to watch the Olympics during the day um, because, you know, I don't, I don't like watching them back when they're finished. So I watched, but I was, it somehow ended up watching race walking. And uh, besides the fact that when I was talking to my dad as a physio, it's like their hips must be like in bits because the way they're walking is not natural. But anyway, um they yeah so many of them had dropped out because they had gut issues and you know i think the temperature was something extortionate in over there it was 35 plus degrees celsius but yeah you can understand and you know you don't get these things happening when you're in the gym yeah it's, it's warm and you're going to be sweating a bit more but you know you're not worried about you know intra-workout fueling strategies or gut issues or if you are you just got it massively wrong um well, yeah, so to, to start with then, I guess, what is an ultra-endurance? People kind of think of endurance as anything probably over 10 repetitions on a squat, but what, what's ultra-endurance <laughs> training? Technically, I think it's anything that is longer than a marathon. That's in the context of running, at least. And yeah. you can think about how long a marathon takes the elite athletes and then think about other sports and how long different disciplines take elite athletes in those sports. And that might help you frame whether the particular discipline in the other sport is an ultra endurance activity. So given that the world record in the marathon is right around two hours for men, Mm. if the best of the best are doing events and completing them in over two hours, then I think that we're starting to cross over into the ultra endurance realm. Mm. Yeah. So I think even something that's like a 50 kilometer marathon or 50 kilometer race would technically be endurance but then you got these races that are you know 50 plus kilometers a day for six days so it's, it's it massive it, sorry it varies widely right yeah absolutely and it varies in many different ways so one is whether it's single stage or multi-stage one is the type of terrain you have ultra marathons taking place on roads but you also have ones done on trails you have very big differences in things like altitude some ultras are done at several thousand meters and also temperature so you have everything from the yukon arctic arctic ultra which is done very very cold conditions to an event such as the marathon des sables in which the temperature is often between 40 and 50 degrees celsius during the day so all of those different factors will influence the best nutrition strategy and the determinants of performance will also vary a little bit according to the specifics of the event. Mm. So when people think of like uh, endurance sports, they, most people think, you know, carb fueling, uh, carb loading, these kind of things. What are the, the most important things when it comes specifically to fueling for endurance training? I think there are there are a few of them one of them of course is the total number of calories that somebody can comfortably consume there's some evidence that people who can better match their calorie intakes to their energy expenditures tend to perform better and that has all sorts of implications for fueling strategies too another would be hydration of course and i think that there are probably two main things to consider there one is hyponatremia and that can come in different forms but 
basically if somebody overconsumes fluid, then they will dilute their blood to the point at which the concentration of sodium specifically can be so low that it can be life-threatening. And while it's less common now than it used to be, hyponatremia is still a problem, particularly among people who run relatively slowly. And I guess the other hydration-related issue, of course, would be hypohydration. And I say hypohydration, not dehydration, because dehydration is the process of becoming less hydrated, whereas hypohydration is the state of being underhydrated, if that makes sense. And when somebody is hypohydrated, that can, of course, negatively affect things like thermoregulation, which is likely to be particularly problematic when somebody is competing at high temperatures. And then there are some others, too. So one would just be gastrointestinal function, something that you touched on earlier. And you mentioned heat earlier. One of the interesting things about competing at high temperatures is that that tends to compromise certain aspects of digestion in particular the integrity of the gut lining and then there are some other factors too so nutrition has some bearing on things like injury risk and musculoskeletal function which is of course relevant to ultra running i think those are some of the main ones but within each of those categories we we can dive deeper into some specifics yeah, so you, you touched on a lot of kind of talking points there. I, I guess we start with um, the the dehydration part of it. You mentioned that people who are slower tend to be at higher risk for for hyponatremia. So that's essentially basically, like you said, the dilution of electrolytes can start to cause major problems, right? Um, and I think is that is that because people who run slower, it's just because they actually just drink more because they've got more time to to drink. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. So like, what are your thoughts then on like electrolytes? And I, I did a, I sometimes I get into rabbit holes and just spend way too much time looking at very nuanced, you know, impractical stuff. And I started looking a lot into electrolytes and like, because it's, it's, it's heavily marketed. I saw it in the supermarket there, electrolyte tablets. It was like nine euro for a tube of like those dissolvable tablets and i was like wow that's pretty crazy um and they're like 75 80 percent salt which is like atp for a kilo of it and so it's like what's going on here so i actually started really looking into like you know are these other um are these other electrolytes like potassium calcium magnesium are these actually required during training um if you're having enough salt and what are your thoughts on that because i know in some of the races like the marathon they sell but they they just give salt tablets yeah um, which are very cost effective mm, exactly i was going to say in in some races competitors have to carry their own hydration tablets with them and that brings up another dimension of ultra running that i didn't mention earlier but it's just whether people compete in events that are self-supported in which they have to carry all of their own food mm. and beverages or semi-supported so they have to carry some of them or unsupported or supported in which case food is largely provided for them and that has some bearing on the best nutrition strategy because if you have to carry all of your nutrition with you then you want to minimize the mass of the food and drinks that you're carrying so that you can be as economical as possible and of course 
high fat items contain more calories per gram than high carbohydrate or high protein ones. So with that said, with respect to electrolytes, if we, if we look at sweat, then the, the main electrolytes lost in sweat are sodium, potassium, and chloride, but we lose lots of things in sweat. We lose things like vitamins, other minerals, lactate, cytokines, and so on. And one of the interesting things is that what you lose in your sweat does somewhat reflect your recent diet intake. So if you consume more salt in your diet, you can lose more sodium in your sweat and more chloride in your sweat too. So we should bear that in mind. The question really is, should somebody supplement with sodium and or some of these additional electrolytes? I think with respect to sodium, it's very clear that because of its osmotic effects, it does support hydration. So for example, I mentioned this to you last time, I think Adam, there's been some work looking at what happens when people consume plain water or water with added sodium. And after losing fluid as a result of exercise, people have to consume roughly one and a half times the mass of fluid loss if they're consuming plain water to restore their fluid levels to a state of eu-hydration so being well hydrated if however they add sodium to the water the more of the water they consume contributes to the fluid in their body so in that way it can help with the hydration process yeah it's very interesting yeah you you mentioned that i think i I can't remember the name of of the the person who yeah it was Ron Morn and Susan Sharef did some of the early work on yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, but that, that was very interesting when I read up about that, and it was it was due to the how it affects vasopressin levels. And actually, yeah. it wasn't that you necessarily needed less water um, or or less water, but you actually just excreted less water in your urine because mm-hmm. people forget it's like okay, I lose this amount of water when I exercise, so I drink back, but they forgot about the time when they went to the, to the bathroom and pee yeah. a liter. Yeah, and one of the interesting things, of course, is that if somebody consumes plain water at a very high rate, then they can actually contribute to being in a hypohydrated state because of the rate at which they excrete it and the fact that very little of the fluid is retained. Mm. So with respect to your hydration strategy, it's important to take on board fluid gradually. But something to mention here is that different solutes will influence how much of the water you retain. And... What that means is that if you're consuming carbohydrate and protein, those will also aid fluid retention in much the same way that, say, sodium does. So practically, if somebody's consuming food while competing and drinking plain water and just adding salt to taste, they're almost certainly going to be okay, in my opinion, especially in the context of ultra running, because ultra marathon running typically entails running at a relatively slow pace and what that means is that sweat rates don't tend to be that high the faster that you run the higher the sweat rate if you're running on faster you'll sweat more quickly if you're competing at high temperatures you'll sweat more quickly too so faster events taking place at higher temperatures necessitate more care when it comes to your hydration strategy But I think for the most part, just drinking to thirst 
and not worrying about adding additional minerals to your water and so on, provided that you're consuming foods that contain added salt is a fine strategy. But with that said, if you've got an elite competitor who runs relatively quickly, who is competing in the heat, then I think there's definitely a strong rationale to have a more programmatic approach to hydration. If that's the case, then you want to spend time in training trying to identify the best strategy for you. And what that would entail is basically trying to mimic the race conditions as closely as possible with respect to things like the type of terrain, the ambient temperature, and so on. And while doing that, you want to monitor your fluid losses during exercise. So for example, you can weigh yourself nude at the start of the exercise. And if you know that you're taking on board one liter of water in total, and you then weigh yourself afterwards, you can work out roughly how quickly you've lost fluid during the exercise. So provided that you're accounting for fluid that you've consumed and fluid that you've excreted by urine, but that doesn't tend to happen much during exercise because during exercise, there's a redistribution of blood flow away from say the genitourinary system towards the skin and skeletal muscles that are more active. Yeah. I I think one thing that I was reading is that, you basically the main thing you should do is just avoid gaining weight after you exercise absolutely and and i think it's probably not a major issue if you drop a percent or even up to two right of your body weight yeah sports i'm not sure in ultra but in some endurance it may actually increase your performance because you're a kilo or two lighter yeah yeah absolutely And, and you see that very clearly in marathon running specifically People who complete races faster lose more body weight. And in the context of ultras, quite a lot of this work has been done by Martin Hoffman. And he's shown that if somebody maintains a state of eutrophication, then during an ultra marathon, within the space of a day, they can expect to lose probably two kilos of body weight because, of course, there's depletion of muscle glycogen and so on. And while we don't know the exact number, it's likely that each gram of muscle glycogen associated two or three grams of water so those glycogen losses are going to contribute to body weight loss too so practically what does that mean it means that the things that athletes should attend to are first obviously and the first mechanism isn't perfect it doesn't kick in immediately by the time that somebody becomes thirsty they're usually slightly hypohydrated maybe up to two percent or so and the main determinant of the first mechanism is the osmolality of the blood as opposed to the fluid of the blood. You have osmoreceptors in the blood, and once the plasma osmolality declines by about 2%, thirst kicks in. So I think going by thirst is is a helpful guide. Looking at changes in body weight. Today, if somebody's doing an ultra marathon that's a multi-stage ultra, then their goal should probably be to keep body weight losses to no more than about one percent of body weight and then finally the first urination of the day is quite telling because during this period the different fluid compartments of the body have had time to equilibrate and what that means is that the color of your first urination of the day is probably generally quite representative of your overall hydration state and if it's the color of apple juice or lighter you're probably you hydrated so thirst, body weight, and urine color are the main things that people need to attend to, I think. 
Mm. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, I, I want to jump into then um, kind of specific nutrition strategies. So we, we did talk about last time, but often when people think in endurance sports or endurance, ultra endurance, especially when you start to think about these self, um, what are they called? Self, self, self-sufficient ones where I've actually seen videos of people literally cutting off the corners of little plastic packets because it weighs a quarter yep. of a gram. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, there's question, there's questions whether you should focus on higher uh, carbohydrate intake because, you know, at, at certain intensities, even across endurance, like run up a hill or something like that, you do still use more uh, anaerobic energy systems or should you focus more on fat oxidate or fat oxidation and then, and then you know consuming fat um, and it is then more calorie dense as well so you're carrying less actual weight of food so what, what's uh, your thoughts on that so you've spoken with mike nelson before and that means that you probably discussed metabolic flexibility which is part of what we're getting at here and my short response would be that it, it depends on the event of course and it depends on the person too but with that said, most people should want the capacity to seamlessly switch between being able to oxidize fat for energy and carbohydrate for energy. And ultramarathon runners have a particular need to be able to use their body fat stores effectively, given the duration of the events, total energy expenditure, and so on. And so periodically training in a state of low carbohydrate availability makes a lot of sense because it's going to improve their ability to use fat for fuel. And if you look at ultra runners, then over the course of ultra marathons, in particular multi-stage ultras, it's likely that all athletes enter a state of ketosis, regardless of their carbohydrate intake. You You can have somebody with a carbohydrate intake over eight grams of carbs per kilo of body weight per day, who is still in ketosis by the end of an ultra that brings up a few different things one is the concept of carbohydrate availability which is the sum of your endogenous stores so your muscle glycogen and also the exogenous carbohydrate that you consume whether that's from sports drinks or foods and so on and so what that means is that you can have adequate carbohydrate carbohydrate availability session, but start the session with relatively low muscle carbohydrate stores if you're taking in carbs during the exercise bout and the intensity of it isn't that high, for example. And I think practically the way that people should go about developing the ability to switch between using these different energy substrates is to use different forms of so-called training low. So training the state of low carbohydrate availability and there are several ways to do that. One is just faster training. And I think a lot of people do this without realizing that they are training low, wake up in the morning and do a faster workout. I think the best way to go about this is actually to have a bolus of protein shortly before the exercise bout, because that way you're going to help preserve your fat free mass. But based on the small amount of work done so far, it seems you're unlikely to, interfere with the signaling pathways that you're trying to stimulate by training in a state of low carbohydrate availability things that can be kind 
signaling, but a lot of those ultimately end up influencing PGC1-alpha, which contributes to things like the formation of new mitochondria in skeletal muscles. And ultimately that influences the ability to burn fat and so on. So you've got faster training, twice a day training can be a very helpful strategy too. If you have say three to eight hours between your training sessions, then if the first session was somewhat strenuous, it's unlikely that you're going to fully replenish your skeletal muscle carbohydrate stores between those bouts, especially if you restrict your carbohydrate intake. So the second bout of the day is going to be done in a state of low carbohydrate availability. And there was very interesting work well before I did my undergrad. I finished that in 2012, showing that if you have people undergo different types of knee extension exercise, such that they're training one leg twice a day every other day, and they're training the other leg once a day every day. So the total number of work bouts is the same and you're controlling for certain important variables that influence training adaptations, then the leg that trains twice a day every other day has greater improvements in work capacity and greater change in some of those determinants of work capacity than the one that trains one day every day, if that makes sense. So mm -hmm. twice a day training can be very helpful. And then there are other methods too, including sleep late in the day, and then afterwards just have protein and or fat so you're now spending sorry, the overnight. Sorry, Greg. Can you just repeat that last 10 seconds? You just, before you said sleep low, just you broke up a little bit. Sure. Yeah. And I was just saying that another strategy is to train late in the day, do some sort of and restrict carbohydrate intake afterwards. And now the overnight sleep period is spent in a state of low carbohydrate availability. So somebody might be in that state for north of 12 hours again that type of strategy can be helpful and then finally another would be to consume a low carb high fat diet day in day out and all the different methods can be helpful depending on the needs of particular and it's clear that when people use those methods they do stimulate those signaling pathways and if they're using them strategically, then it's likely that they, they'll either have a neutral effect on their performance or they might slightly boost their performance. With that said, if somebody's restricting their carbohydrate intake day in and day out, it's clear that especially for relatively short bouts of exercise, that is going to impair exercise performance for a few different reasons. One, they're going to interfere with their ability to oxidize carbohydrate for energy because there's a down regulation of a particular enzyme named pyruvate dehydrogenase and another issue with that type of strategy is that done chronically it might not be good for things like immune function and so as a, as a result of those changes as well as the fact that if you look at the atp produced of oxygen produce fewer atp per unit of oxygen if you're burning fat than if you're burning carbohydrate so the actual efficiency of that process is lower if you're consuming a high fat diet so you put all that together and it just means that that strategy day in day out isn't smart for most people outside of 
rare context just bear in mind that if somebody's doing some sort of very long duration self-supported event things do change a bit and just as an example of this at resilient nutrition we're supporting a couple of guys who are trying to cross the they're trying to cross antarctica unsupported so they're going to be away for several months in antarctica carrying all of their own food and i think in that type of context yeah in that type of context that low carb high fat diet might well come into its own and we don't really know because the the research hasn't been done and then finally i'll just add that when you're thinking about using this type of nutritional periodization the goal should be probably at least to fuel for the work required which is a term that was popularized by some researchers at liverpool john moore's university a few years ago and what that means is starting each session with sufficient carbohydrate availability to be able to complete the session finishing with an amount of muscle glycogen that's going to stimulate the adaptations that you're after and so what that means is that if you're trying to do some sort of very intense session so maybe you're doing intervals or you're doing a very long session because you're trying to mimic the race itself then you probably want to start that type of bout in a state of high carbohydrate availability so you can maximize the work that you can complete and thereby contribute to those adaptations and being able to maximize the work you complete is important to some adaptations probably in particular central adaptation so changed in the myocardium the heart muscle itself for example but then there are other sessions in which you're just doing something at a low intensity and you're just ticking over and if that's the case then you don't need to do those sessions in the state of high carbohydrate availability if you're after those adaptations then you probably don't want to do those sessions in a state of high carbohydrate availability so Mm -hmm. It's really a question of trying to tune your carbohydrate intake from session to session so that you're triggering those adaptations that you're after. But one modifying factor is that if you wanted to discuss this, Adam, you are in a state of relative energy deficiency, so you're chronically under eating, then it might be that this type of approach isn't smart in the short term because you've been trained in a state of low energy and or carbohydrate availability for so long that various aspects of your health and performance have become compromised. And now the onus should be on restoring your health, which means reducing your training loads, increasing your energy and carbohydrate intake and so on. Mm. Yeah. It's very interesting. The, the topic of like, you made a very important point that you can get these adaptations of maximizing or near maximizing your fat oxidation without actually just following a low carb diet because i do hear that quite frequently from friends and stuff like that who are into endurance for they, they listen to kind of podcasts of people who just you know they'll, they'll say oh low end in, low intensity exercise fat oxidation is increased even though they forget that you still oxidize carbohydrates so then let's follow a low carb diet but um you know you can like you said that the benefits of doing some of these nutritional periodization strategies, you can actually benefit from being able to maximize both energy systems and still um, getting the most of it. But things like for, for a marathon, for example, it makes sense to have a high carbohydrate diet because you're probably, you're probably going to be near depleted towards the end of it. But if you think about like an 
multi-stage ultra marathon like by day one you're going to be pretty glycogen depleted and can you really ever restore significant amounts of muscle glycogen when you're still running recovering and running for half the day and trying to carry all that food and you know you're not going to be carrying you know 600 grams of carbs probably Um, yeah so it's it's interesting yeah and to be clear you certainly can fully deplete your or more or less fully deplete your muscle glycogen just through a marathon itself i think half marathon distance it's less of an issue but people talk about hitting the wall or bonking and that does relate to muscle glycogen but i think all of this does become more and more relevant in ultra marathon running in particular is hitting the wall is that when you because I, I know it's a very colloquial term is that when can that be explained by drops is that is that explained by hypoglycemia or is it a critical level of muscle glycogen or is it when someone switches to ketosis what is it specifically or all of the above yeah it's a, it's a good question and the short answer is that i don't fully know and i i don't know if other people know either maybe somebody does but I think a lot of it does relate to substrate use. And when somebody has pretty much depleted the active musculature of its muscle glycogen, and there's not much carbohydrate available, so they're not consuming carbohydrate at a sufficient rate, then that's obviously going to affect local muscle function. It does raise one interesting concept, which is the idea of using a carbohydrate mouth rinse. I mentioned earlier that Digestive issues are common among ultra athletes. It seems that between about 75% and 95% of ultra marathon runners experience moderate or even severe gastrointestinal issues. Mm. And based on that, they can't always consume food, even if they know that if they could and they could digest it, it would be good for their performance. And one strategy that's been shown to be effective in certain types of events is just rinsing the mouth with carbohydrate. And when people do that, it seems that because there are certain receptors in the mouth that then influence patterns of activity in certain parts of the brain, the insula, the orbitofrontal cortex, and some others, they might actually slightly boost their performance. So even though somebody might not have carbohydrate in their blood, the presence of carbohydrate can still be a stimulus that that can be helpful in that context. Yeah, it's it's very interesting that um, I think when they compared it to even a sweetened zero calorie uh, beverage, it didn't give the same effect. So it's it's not just the sweetness; it's it's something to do with the carbohydrates. And then when it comes to the gut issues, uh, we we often see you know endurance sports, you know, sixty grams per hour uh, or up to ninety grams per hour if you are consuming you know multiple transportable carbs. And does this really translate in reality to into kind of ultra endurance? Because, you know, the, the key thing is, is like, if you, you know, you, you can do all these crazy strategies or, or you know, evidence-based strategies, but if, if you have to drop out, then you're, you're out of the race. Yeah. And it's a, it's a really interesting subject. And what I'd say is that if, if somebody's trying to, maximize their performance then they need to get this right obviously and 
a lot of the work has been done looking at marathon running in particular and events of roughly that duration. And, and that's where that recommendation to consume 60 to 90 grams of carbs per hour really comes from. And you mentioned multiple transportable carbohydrates there. The concept is just that different types of monosaccharides, so glucose and fructose, are taken up by different transporters in the gut. Glucose is taken up by SGLT1, fructose by GLUT5. And what that means is that if you combine them in appropriate ratios, you can take up more carbohydrate than you could by consuming the same amount of any one carbohydrate, provided that you're above a certain threshold. So 60 grams of glucose plus 30 grams of fructose per hour seems to be roughly the maximum rate at which somebody can take up carbohydrate, an effect which interestingly seems to be somewhat independent of how heavy someone is, which I think is quite counterintuitive, or at least it is to me. So with that said, there hasn't been much work on this looking at ultra runners. I think I mentioned to you last time that Ricardo Costa has done a little bit of work looking at carbohydrate ingestion during ultra marathon running and the likelihood of it producing things like malabsorption. Malabsorption is basically where more or less undigested carbohydrate ends up in part of the small intestine. And when it's there, it has an osmotic effect. So it pulls water into the gut, which is one of the things that contributes to gut discomfort. And it's also fermented and that type of fermentation contributes to gas. So you don't want those things. And when he was looking at ultra marathon runners, they couldn't take on board carbohydrate as quickly as, as 60 to 90 grams per hour is at a rate slightly lower than that. Mm-hmm. So we don't know. And of course, again, it's going to depend on things like the profile of the event, how fast it is, the ambient temperature and so on. But I think practically there are a few things for people to consider. And one of the most important ones, of course, is first treat any gastrointestinal problems that the person has. If if somebody has irritable bowel disorder, then that's going to necessitate a particular approach. So first focus on those. Next, based on that, you're going to choose foods that you find relatively easy to digest. And in the case of IBD, that often means consuming a so-called low FODMAP diet. FODMAPs are types of short-chain carbohydrates that are fermentable. It stands for fructose, oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. And foods such as garlic, leeks, certain fruits, some pulses tend to be very high in these. And hence the fact that they can lead to lots of gas in some people. And doing away with those high FODMAP foods at the 24 hours preceding a race and during the race itself can be quite transformative for some people. And this hasn't been studied in many people, but based on things like the case studies done so far, it's definitely a helpful strategy, especially for people with IBD. And there's an app made by Monash University, FODMAP app that people can check out if they want to have a closer look at that. Other people won't need to restrict all of those moderate to high FODMAP foods. They might only want to restrict some of them. Strategies would include things like consuming a low fiber diet at this time, or just restricting certain types of FODMAPs. And common ones would include fructose and 
also lactose, which is a type of sugar that's found in milk. And those strategies can be really helpful for some people. And then other considerations would be, you of course want to start the events themselves in a state of high carbohydrate availability. And so the 24 to 36 hours preceding uh, ultramarathon event are really important. And during that time, you probably want to consume anywhere between about eight and 12 grams of carbs per kilo of body weight per 24 hours. And you want to spread out your intake on those days. So you're not trying to consume all of that in three boluses, for example, instead consume smaller amounts more frequently. And at this time, consuming relatively high glycemic index or glycemic load foods can be helpful to some evidence that you can synthesize glycogen faster when you consume those higher GI or higher GL items. That way you're starting the event with the full tank. And then during the event itself, really comes down to again choosing a breakfast that's easy to digest before the race. Obviously spacing your food intake so that you're consuming small amounts frequently. But there is also a consideration of how you space your intake across the day. A lot of people experience increasingly bad symptoms over the course of a race, which is unsurprising, especially when the events are multi-stage ultras, and especially when somebody hasn't had much sleep between these stages, because it's very clear that sleep loss contributes to dysbiosis in the gut and also to intestinal permeability, which are both going to exacerbate gastrointestinal difficulties. So I think front-loading your intake slightly can be helpful. And then also taking on board fluid at a relatively even rate, because if you consume lots of fluid at once, that can negatively affect your digestion too. And then considering things like using multiple transportable carbohydrates while you're running, that's likely to help your tolerance to consuming foods versus consuming only one type of short chain carbohydrate say and then finally i think where a lot of people come unstuck and it's a really obvious problem is they don't practice their nutrition before the event Mm. and it's very clear that people can build their tolerance to take on board food during events and ricardo costa has done quite a lot of this work it seems that the the minimum amount of so-called gut training that you'd want to do probably be three sessions a week for two weeks practically though i think if you're going to practice your nutrition and training you should only do that if the training sessions are an hour or longer and a lot of people who have regular jobs and so on only have time for one long run per week so if that's the case and let's say that you're doing a long run on saturday or sunday i think doing that long session and practicing your nutrition nutrition during it makes a lot of sense. And you'll want to do that for longer than two weeks because you're only doing one session a week. So you might want to do that for six Mm. weeks or longer. And the goal during these sessions should be to progressively build your tolerance to digest and metabolize the carbohydrate. So maybe ultimately the goal is to actually train yourself to take on board at a rate 20% higher than your target rate during the race. So if your target rate during the race is, say, 90 grams per hour, then 
in training, you'd want to try and get to 108 grams per hour, 20% higher than 90 grams. But when you're first starting to train your gut during those sessions, maybe you're only taking on board 50 grams of carbs per hour. Mm. And then you're adding, say, 10 grams or so per session until you're at that upper limit of rate of intake. And one other thing that you can play around with is the solidity of the food. A lot of people find it easy to consume more liquid or pre-digested items when they do solid foods. So you could get to that upper end of the range via consuming sports drinks or carbohydrate gels or something like that. But then over time, transition to consuming solid foods at that same rate of intake. And finally, for people who are consuming lots of fats, you, you want to do this too. With It just hasn't been that well studied, so we don't know so much about the, the changes that take place during that type of gut training relative to training your gut to take up more carbohydrate. Yeah, it's interesting uh, because, you know, we, we know a lot about the how much carbohydrates we oxidize during training, but not really that much about fat. So, but we know it's less. So per, per minute, or at least the, the amount that we burn or oxidize per minute, um, so it's probably a lower amount than 90 grams per per hour. Um, but it's interesting. Yeah, uh, the last time we spoke, I was wondering when I looked into that Ricardo Costa um, the paper, into his papers, I was wondering, like, why is it that, you know, these 90 gram suggestions where you see written all over these textbooks, like even the ones you see behind me, um, like, why doesn't this translate into actual endurance? And it's like that that research where it's 90 grams per hour or or you know, around that, it's pretty much always done in cyclists, which mm. the, 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 the mechanic, biomechanics are completely different. And yeah. you're not pounding, you're not pounding on the ground or running up a hill or, you know, well, the temperature is independent of that. But yeah, like I think it was like 45 grams the Ricardo Costa work was, was like what they tolerated decently yeah. well. And it's funny mm-hmm. that you, you, you touch on it, like, uh, people often think okay i've got these gels i'll save them for race day or they go to the marathon or something and it's like there's a table there with the free stuff yeah from the sponsor. it's like yeah just start shoveling gels it's like what, what the hell are you doing like you know, <laughs> I do that. I, when i used to play sport basketball when i was much younger we, when we had big games like finals and stuff like that the the coach would always like make us take a uh, luke's eight sports during the like two or three luke's eight sports during the match but in other games for like 95% of the rest of the year, we just drink water. So it's like, you know, I know it's not the same, but like just start doing this strategy on game day, you know, it's, it's pretty crazy. Um, to think that, but that's yeah. what a lot of people do. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And we didn't touch on mechanisms, but you mentioned the type of mechanical oscillation you experienced during running there. And I think that's probably the main reason that rates of GI problems are higher in runners than they are in cyclists and and the other things that contribute are things like the fact that you've got blood flow redistribution away from the gut which compromises Mm. the integrity of the cells that line the gut you've got changes in stress hormones which influence things like gastrointestinal motility but then there are also intrinsic factors so things like biological sex have some bearing on the likelihood of gut issues they're more common at certain stages of the menstrual cycle than others and then extrinsic factors too, so environmental temperature, and then things like 
how nervous somebody is. Yeah. And and finally, one that I didn't mention, which I just want to touch on quickly, is time of day. If you're training your gut, then that is an important variable too, because let's say that you're running through the night, your digestive function is going to be quite strongly compromised at that time. And if you're trying to get ready for that, then ideally you would be training your gut during the night too and doing some sessions during the night time, practicing your nutrition ahead of the event, mm. at least if it's really important to you. Mm. Yeah, I, I wanted to quickly, uh, to wrap up, I wanted to quickly touch on something that you mentioned earlier, which was a uh, relative energy deficiency. So do you, do you want to quickly explain what that is? And because, you know, often people can, that do these endurance things will often get into them because they want to get in shape or, or lose body fat. But then, you know, they kind of, these goals are kind of counterintuitive, especially if you're trying to maximize your performance. Yeah, absolutely. So relative energy deficiency in sport is a concept that really started with the female athlete triad. and. Barbara Drinkwater did a lot of the early research on that. But what's happened is that over time, people have realized that this isn't just something that affects women. And the female athlete triad basically was disordered eating, low bone mineral density and amenorrhea. It affects men too. Hence the fact that it's evolved to relative energy deficiency in sport. And it's often defined by looking at the, energy that's left over for your body per kilogram of fat-free mass of your body after accounting for the energy that you expend during exercise and guidelines typically recommend the energy availability which is the product of the equation i just mentioned should be 45 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass or higher which is actually quite a lot of energy and i think problems really emerge when people consume less than 30 kilocals per Mm. kilogram of fat-free mass and i think that's probably the more important number and of course people can't really estimate this in the wild at the moment we don't have good measures of things like exercise energy expenditure or energy availability so really it's more of an academic exercise but i just wanted to add that for completeness and one of the interesting things is that if you look at the symptoms that manifest in response to chronic low energy availability or relative energy deficiency in sport then they almost perfectly map to the symptoms of overtraining and there's been some work very recently reviewing studies of overtraining and reviewing studies of relative energy deficiency in sport showing that in the vast majority i think 80 86 percent of studies of overtraining that were looked at there was either low energy availability or low carbohydrate availability. Mm. So just bear that in mind, because I think we, we might all be talking about many of the same things here. And so with that said, the symptoms of relative energy deficiency in sport really pertain to both performance and health. If you look at performance, then endurance capacity is compromised. Muscle strength is Things like decision-making might be too. People might be predisposed to certain types of injuries too, in particular musculoskeletal injuries, bone issues especially. And then there are health consequences. One would be impairment of the HPG axis that influences things like sex hormones and hence the menstrual cycle. The HPT axis, so 
thyroid function, which of course is very relevant to things like resting metabolic rate, fertility, and so on. Immune function tends to be compromised. People experience more mood disturbances too. So it really seems that pretty much all aspects of biology are negatively affected by this particular syndrome. And so the question is, how can we identify people who are at risk of or experiencing it? And how can we treat them too? And I think a lot of us would intuitively recognize that there are certain parts of that predisposed to this problem. And those include people who are energy experiences, so ultra marathon runners would be one of them, but also athletes in aesthetic sports, I think, say, gymnastics or sports in which the strong onus on possible, which could include everyone from physique athletes to sprinters. And to identify most commonly used methods include and probably the best of the questionnaires, unfortunately, is women specific. It's called the Leaf Cube questionnaire. And that's low energy availability in females questionnaire. And Another one that's quite widely used, but which is only a questionnaire. So there's a bit of a lack of validated items for male athletes specifically, unfortunately, and, and there needs to be more work done. And then with respect to treatment, it depends on a few different things depending on the needs of the person. So if somebody has an eating disorder, then counselling and psychological help and cognitive behavioural therapy can be very helpful in those instances. But I think for anybody who has this particular problem, nutrition is, is really important, of course. And that means consuming enough carbohydrate, consuming enough total energy, and also spacing intake relatively evenly across the day and avoiding long periods of fasting. Mm. I think a lot of people come unstuck there and then providing enough of certain nutrients to offset some of the symptoms of red S. So if somebody has low bone mineral density, then having enough bone building nutrients like calcium, vitamin K2, vitamin D is important as well. And hopefully as awareness of this problem is growing, people are going to be able to flag it earlier and, and help people better because it is surprisingly pervasive. Yeah. It, it's, it's interesting that like, um, if you look at some of the kind of the, the key standards of say body composition in elite, let's say sprinters or middle distance runners or, or something like that. And they may be, you know, 8% or 10% for a man and 14% for a woman or something like that. I know from my experience working with people just in general that some people are not going to get there without being in a state of relative energy deficiency yeah. and they won't, they, they will not maintain that body composition. I wouldn't personally maintain 10% body fat. So it's like almost like survivorship bias. And then the, mm -hmm. the data has been sculpted around that. It's like, you need to get 10% body fat to be an elite athlete. It's like, but also you can't be in relative energy deficiency. It's like, well, that's not possible for my physiology. I need to, you know, I need more body fat to not be in that state of relative energy deficiency. 
Um, because if I want to maintain that body fat, I'm going to have to keep my calories very, very low and exercise quite a lot. And there's no way, there's no way kind of around that. Yeah. Well, I think, so I think I got the gist of what you were saying. And I, I agree that for people who need to be very lean to compete at the highest level, whose bodies aren't naturally disposed to having that type of composition, there might be periods in which they're inevitably inevitably going to end up in a state of relative energy deficiency but with that said there are some people who just get better and better body composition over the course of their careers and interestingly who seemingly are able to eat more and more food i know i've seen this with certain types of athletes so i'm thinking of 400 meter sprinters for example it seems like their carbohydrate intakes just go up and up and the absolute amount of fat-free mass that they have might not change that much, but maybe they're coming from a state of lower energy availability than ideal. And because they've progressively increased their intake systematically over time. And because our bodies, I think naturally somewhat try and defend a certain level of body fat, what ends up happening is they basically just end up burning more calories in response to consuming more calories. And as a result of that, consequences of relative energy deficiency in sport that maybe they once had. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely interesting. And uh, yeah, it's, it's it need, I think a lot more work needs to be kind of looked into it specifically rather than saying it's so clear as black or white. But, but Greg, it's been great to have you on. So I know you mentioned at the start uh, a little bit about resilient nutrition. So what are you guys up to uh, over there? Yeah, we are busy, of course. We're, we're now about a year old, which is very exciting. <laughs> and we have a new product coming out shortly. I don't know if it will be out by the time that this product goes live. And this week, we actually have to decide on the name of the product. So that's not finalized yet. But briefly (laughs) but what it is is a hot chocolate that is designed to be taken at the start of the day if you want to be at your physical and or mental peak and it's a product which should be especially helpful if you haven't slept well and it's been designed to affect all sorts of different bodily systems so after you consume it hopefully you'll be a little bit smarter form better but also things like immune function cardiovascular health too and as is true about other products there's no rubbish in it and it does taste nice so the, the way that i sometimes describe it to people is that it's a bit like what coffee should have been but it is in fact a hot chocolate okay it sounds like limitless yeah well i mean that was that was I'm not sure that we've got something yeah. that creates effects like what bradley cooper experienced in that film yeah. But it's, it's really helpful. And just as an example of this, I had a podcast with Steve from Revive Stronger a couple of days ago, and I had a horrible night's sleep the night before. And I took this at the start of the day, and, and I, was, I was back in the room. So I think given the fact that sleep problems are very common nowadays, especially as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic and all the stress that people experience, the time is ripe for this type of product. And... Mm. 
if people go to resilientnutrition.com, then if it's not already out, it will be out soon. But otherwise, you might already see it up there. That's great. Yeah, I look forward to trying that myself. Um, so where else can people find you, Greg? For Resilient Nutrition, at Resilient Nuts on social media. And then my personal social media is at Greg Potter PhD. I'm most active on Instagram, not particularly active on any platform, but if you reach out to me there, then I will get back to you. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Coming on. Pleasure. Thanks, Adam.